welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast with Sports Pro Editorial Director James Annett, that's me, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Yes, I'm back with another Sports Pro Podcast with me, way too many people for a podcast. Uh, number one, David Kushnan, former editor of Sports Pro. Hello, David. Hello. Number two, Owen Connolly, current editor of Sports Pro. Hello, Owen. Hi, James. Number three, Matt Cutler, former editor of Sport Business International. Hello, Matt. Hello, James. Thanks for having me. No problem at all, Matt. Number four, uh, Richard Gillis uh, from the unofficial partner blog and previously of Sport Business International himself. Hello, Richard. Hello, James. And last but not least, uh, Mr. Scott Bowers from the Jockey Club. Hello, Scott. Hi, James. On today's podcast, we'll be looking at all the biggest stories across 2015, sports business stories, that is, and we will kick off somewhere over here. Dave. What was your highlight of 2015? Ah, uh, my highlight of 2015 was probably, from a, from a sport business perspective, <laughs> um, was probably uh, Discovery uh, buying up all those Olympic rights. Mm, mm. Um, why was that a highlight, David? I just love a big TV rights uh, TV rights deal, mm-hmm. um, and especially when uh, when you combine that with the Olympic Games, it's mm. very exciting. Matt Cutler, were you still in work when this deal happened? I was, yeah, I was. I was with you in Paris, I think. Um, um, I know that was. I think that was before it got announced. Mm. Um, I, th- I also think that was a very interesting moment. Mm. But remains to be seen. I would suggest how that will change the landscape for Olympic broadcasting, particularly if Eurosport just almost acts as an agency and just redistributes all the content mm-hmm. and then just shows whatever's left. I mean, not that will, that will necessarily happen. I mean, they've got their big PR. Um, Stunt by coming into the market with a whole load of cash to get the rights, and everyone sat up and took notice of Discovery Stroke Eurosport. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'd be interesting to see, we'll have this discussion maybe a year's time, mm-hmm. and see what mm-hmm. that means. Scott Bowers, you're a big Olympic man, you're a big man, uh, and also formerly, <laughs> formerly an Olympic man. What's your take on this Discovery deal? I mean, I think Matt's right. I think it's, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think one of the things for me is the new Olympic channel, how that's going to play out in the next 12 months. I think we'll. <laughs> We'll know. Uh, we'll kind of be able to predict a, you know, five, five, ten years into the future what happens in the next twelve months with that. Really, I would say. Mm. And I think the balance is it just going to be? You know, how do you share the platform with Eurosport? How does Discovery fit in? I think it's a potentially very exciting deal because of um, the future. Clearly, it's not just the future; it's the now is multi-platform, and I think Discovery brings that in spades. Uh, but I still think Olympic sports and the Olympic world are wrestling with what does that really mean in practice. We talk mm. a lot about social, short-form content and all this. At the end of the day, people want a lot of money on the table for a big rights deal. Mm. Um, but we'll see. I think Discovery, therefore, are the, the kind of brand, that, the kind of organisation that has the chance to move them into the future. What, what, is, what does the Olympic Channel have to show? Uh, nothing yet. It's got exactly. the Olympic archive. Um, they're trying to launch it pre-Rio, um, but I think that's probably quite ambitious. It was interesting yesterday. I was at a off-the-record briefing with Discovery, but I'm going to bang it on the record right now. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that JB Perret, who is the president of Discovery Communications International, was clearly it's a comms line, but he was regularly referring to Eurosport as already the Olympic channel. Which I think is probably a dangerous line to I mean, be. I mean, they call themselves the NBC of Europe. The NBC of Europe, and and I, it's interesting. I like Scott. The 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 whole issue of okay, they paid what one point four five billion yeah. for the rights. So there's a lot of inventory in there, which 
we, you know, in the UK, for example, the big story was the BBC's role and its perceived sort of loss of the Olympics. But as as Matt's saying, you know, it might well be a complete non-story in that they just they just sort of warehouse the rights and then sell them on, and we don't know, quite know where it's going to go. It's quite nice. I mean, I'm interested in Eurosport as a thing. I've never, you know, that's that's it's a rare day that people say that because actually, you know, it was it's always been. They claim enormous numbers. Obviously, you know they're in every household, um, and no one, no one watches it. But it's like a sort of the right. They've always struggled. They've always been blocked out by various rights deals. You know, they, they, they But now it appears, them with Discovery's sort of uh, um, backing, it could be a really interesting moment. It could, it could change it. It just depends on on their level of ambition and I don't quite know what that is at the moment no one does I mean getting back to the, the just on the Olympic TV thing which links to the other moment you know another moment in the in 2015 was Visor's Sport Accord mm. sort of explosion and the whole break you know that that is is a really big story of the year and actually one of the things that he said he said quite a few things that a lot of people agreed with <clears throat> but they just didn't want to hear them from him or in that context and, and one of the things he said was Olympic TV channel is a massive, massive waste of money, and we don't know whether or not that's true or not. And and it remains to be seen whether he's he's right. But actually, you know, bundled into the way he said it and what he said at the time, it was sort of a bit disregarded. But it might, you know, history might well view him a bit more favourably. Um, at Sport Accord, when Maris Visa um, gave his explosive and ultimately. Uh, well, not fatal, but uh, certainly... Is it Visa job. Or I'm going with Visa. You can go with Visa. Um, I was being briefed privately that uh, Marius Visa was very upset about the whole Olympic Channel thing because he believed that it was his idea. Not that he thought it was a very bad idea, that he thought it was an excellent idea and that it was his. Um, but going back to the Euro... That's very controversial. <coughs> you, you only get controversy on this podcast, Richard. Um <laughs> <laughs> going, going back to the, the idea itself has, has been around a very long time, hasn't it? I mean, you know, since the Olympics start, I mean, and television started, people were so for him to claim an Olympic te- television channel was his idea. That's been on the car, you know, people talking about it for donkey's years. So that's nonsense. I think um, just very quickly going back to the Eurosport thing, I think what will be more crucial for them is not the Olympic deal. Um, obviously, they've got more money in their sort of rights acquisition arsenal at the moment. And they're making a very concerted effort to add local content. So they bought the Norwegian League in Norway, the Polish League in Polar Football Leagues uh, in Poland, and the Danish League in Denmark. And I think that's going to be more crucial in terms of audience figures in the short term. Moving on again. and uh, Owen Connolly. Yeah, the, um, the other side of this that, that is significant, I think, in the European rights market is it's going to be a test case for a big pay TV uh, spender coming in, taking what have been protected EU rights, and seeing if they can do something interesting with them, or if they just revert to kind of free-to-air channels. But if you know a Sky, for example, was interested in picking up World Cup rights down the line, disseminating them through their various pay TV networks, and then also building up a free-to-air base in that way, they might be paying attention to what Discovery and Eurosport are doing with the Olympics. Mm. So in terms of the, the, and I'm not clear about the answer to this, but the decision in terms of, of whether or not the Olympics could go to Sky or BT or, you know, across Europe on pay TV, is that an IOC decision or is that part of the 
Eurosport Discovery. UK uh, legislation, it's UK legislation, but it's also in the IOC charter that a certain number of hours have to mm. be shown on on terrestrial free-to-air TV. And they have um, they have metrics in place for how many people have to be able to receive that channel and and so on. So it can't be kind of an over-the-top digital thing. It has to be. You have to prove penetration listed, with your over-the-top stuff. Legislation is you know it's under pressure now in 2015. In 20, by 2024, I mean it, it, it's. It's going to be archaic, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It's, and I think it says that ninety percent of households oh. has to be re- has to, a free-to-air mm. channel has to reach. But yeah, in twenty twenty-four, whatever. What you know? What does that mean? Well, don't don't forget that Discovery have a free-to-air channel that they've already been showcasing certain <coughs> sports. Speedway. Yeah. I think they did a portion of the Le Mans twenty-four hours on uh, Quest in the UK. So they have this already in place. What five six years out from when they would actually need it for uh, for an Olympic use? So they're already, I would imagine, testing to see whether it is viable for them to go it alone. And I mean, similarly, you know, BT and Sky in this country are doing similar things with with free to air channels, where they they both have one, but it's just whether they can prove that people are watching it. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to add. I think there's um, a distinction as well between live rights and the on-demand we know that people want the content anytime anywhere now but i think the one real distinction to that that's you know if you want to catch on your tv programs you go at home you watch it in your you know your room at your time the sport live sport is the difference that is the one thing that at the moment we're not seeing say the grand national in for the jockey club in the uk nine million audience that hasn't shifted in the last few years whether we're on bbc whether we're on channel four on demand, there'll be a few people watching on a replay, not that many. You've, you know, maybe you've put a bet on, that's why you want to do it. But people want to know the result of sport. You know, sport is nothing if you know the result really, is it? Unless you desperately want to see how your team fared. The most important thing is, did we win? Did we lose? Who won? And therefore, I think it's interesting, in the Olympic world, the way that, um, you know, with certain Olympics and, and time zones, the way NBC have shown a lot of content not live and how that's worked for them and then how suddenly now they're doing a lot more of the live and I think that will work more for them but I just think it's a, an interesting balance as we're looking multi-platform and pay TV how much of this is going to be on platforms at the click of a button you can watch it when you want to I think at the moment the fan still wants it live and, and right now mm-hmm. um, It's interesting you mentioned time zones there of course um, Discovery Eurosports deal with the Olympics kicks in for 2018 for the PyeongChang Games then they've got 2020 in Tokyo um, 2022 in Beijing so that's three Asian games difficult time zones they will be wanting the 2024 Olympic race to end with a win for Paris I suppose their home city or Budapest uh, or Rome or Rome uh, they just won't want it in LA I guess um, we've already declared on this podcast that Paris will be the winner of that competition uh, has uh, perhaps you weren't on that one David no I was on uh, that one and, and saying that Hamburg would spring a surprise <laughs> yeah, they certainly have <laughs> Um, well, who, obviously, the race is, uh, is sort of um, begun in earnest now, this 2024 Olympic bidding race. Who do we think is going to win and why? Let's go to Owen Connolly first on this one. I think Paris is going to win for many of the reasons that have previously been expressed. They, um, it's a bid that they've had a couple of goes at. They know what the concept is. They've got reasonable levels of public support. They have state support. They are well respected within the IOC. I think LA would be a different games, would be an interesting games. But I also think that the shift from one American city to another probably didn't help. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just think that there's, you know, there's always a, 
a romantic angle in, in taking an event to Paris, if you will pardon the expression. Is anyone going to stick up for LA? Matt? No, but, and also particularly when they've just had a terrorist attack there, which you can, which will be interesting to see when that starts coming into communications, which I imagine will be relatively soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think LA still... It's funny because today, the day we're recording this podcast, I think the Rome mayor came out and saying that Paris is the big, their big rival in it in the race mm-hmm. which I mean there's you know there's, there's a, I hate the word but there's a great narrative for Los Angeles to you know to be awarded it it's all ready made infrastructure uh, things like that you know particularly when Agenda 2020 um, is still very prevalent in things like bidding races um, there's, know, there's, prob- there's probably something. an element in, in that in those comments of already lobbying for the European bloc vote I mean Scott you perhaps know a bit bit more about the workings of these things having been involved in in bids previously but I think LA will probably end up winning Um, but I would love to see an Olympics in Rome I think it would be fantastically chaotic and I think their logo which was just launched this week um, is absolutely brilliant I've heard Rome described David as LA with ruins I would throw into the mix. I think the reason it's been a long time since you know the, obviously the bid before Atlanta '96, um, you know, with their win there, is the revenue share, the well you know well documented over the years revenue share and agreement. Uh, European IOC members in particular were not very happy with the share that they got, um, and that was in light of amount of TV, you know, American TV money and American sponsors. So the IOC had the agreement to send that money back towards uh, U- US um, and their sports. Um, that has now moved on. There is now an agreement on that. So I think that has to be a new, now a big factor for LA. When I worked on the 2016 bidding process, um, it was you know behind closed doors, very much understood. Unless you know whether Obama, both Obamas came, and they were badly advised to come. Everyone's saying they're not, they're possibly going to come last, but they're not going to win it unless he gets down and grovels, you know, on behalf of the US and makes all sorts of promises. You know he, that didn't happen, and we know what happened in the outcome. You wait till Donald Trump turns up. Well, my goodness me. Um, but certainly, I, I, I think it's very difficult to call at this stage. I would just say be aware, you know, or beware, the, the outsider. We've seen many races. Um, I think Budapest and obviously now Hamburg, you know, out of it completely. But Budapest, I just don't see. Rome, I think, you know, has a long way to go. But as you say, David, a great city. <laughs> Paris, I think Matt's absolutely right to raise the terrorist attacks. I mean, you saw some initial negative commentary around, oh, is this going to be an issue for Euro 2016 now? Um, Every major city has had terrorist attacks at one time or another, or several of them, and it's obviously how you respond to that. Um, but I think, you know, it, I believe I'm right in saying it'll be 100 years um, since they last hosted it in 24. Um, I think the case has been made. I think Owen talked about, you know, what the case is for Paris. But I think there's still a hell of a long way to go. And what we do know is that in 2020, you're looking at Istanbul. Loads of reasons, particularly with the geopolitical issues around. Wouldn't it be great if Istanbul had won the 2016 uh, bidding race? I can't remember whether they were in, in for that. But what a wonderful time to sort of showcase East meets West and puncture some Islamophobia in the, in the process. Well, it's tricky, it's tricky because, I mean, I think this is the thing, the underlying message of the Istanbul bid was clearly that it's an opportunity in a, um, you know, an environment where there is Christianity in, in Turkey, as we know, and, you know, right there on Europe, right there on the, with Asia, in the Islam, Islamic world, Muslim world, um, but not an Arab country, which would be a further step, and, um, and obviously the, the FIFA World <coughs> Cup has gone there. 
um, there was that opportunity of solidarity building bridges very, very subtly in that, the world's meeting place of Byzantine, Constantinople, Istanbul. And that was destroyed from within. Uh, you know, it's, who am I to talk about whether, you know, it's not about an Olympic bid, the reasons that the riots in Turkey may have been, you know, perfectly valid reasons uh, domestically, but it did cost them on the international stage. Um, so it will be interesting how, what, how they return to the, the fray in the future. But I do think um, there are some matters, as Matt said, on, on Paris that um, it would be tricky for them, but they can turn it to their advantage, as Boston would have done as well after the marathon bombings. The IOC's got a huge issue here as well. I mean, Matt referenced Agenda 2020. A, you have the issue of uh, public support in various cities, and we've seen Hamburg uh, have gone this year as a result of a, a referendum. Boston um, never even got to their planned referendum in the end. The, you know, they decided to, to nix that uh, while they could. And I think the uh, the issue for the the issue that the IOC has to face is that when there is a winning bidder and a host city has been uh, has been named, you're getting into these situations now. And it's, it's always been the case to a, a lesser or greater extent, but you're really getting scrutiny now for changes um, that uh, organising committees are making after winning bids. And you, we saw this uh, with Tokyo this year. Obviously, there was the logo issue, which was unfortunate, to say the least, uh, but... but more significant in the long run is the the issue around the stadium and also and James perhaps you, you've got a, a thought on this uh, the venues for events like the cycling which has just been moved uh, recently major changes all being at the moment cloaked under agenda 2020 cost saving look we're adapting to new circumstances but I think there is an issue over how much of a bid the public are believing um, you know after, after it's won and, and what changes are allowed and what changes should be made and, and how much change is too much once you've won? Well, I think Tokyo is probably a special case because uh, the bidding race happened pre-Agenda 2020 and they're essentially going to be the, the sort of test case for how a new sustainable games can, can work. And they've sort of been given licence to rip up their book and, and start again. And, 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 and a lot of old venues, I mean, from 64. You know, one thing that, that Japan has done very well, at least in the summer sense, not in Nagano, but uh, there's virtually nothing left from their Winter Olympics. But certainly in Tokyo, you know, when I was there, and as I said, worked on their bid previously, you know, they, it was incredible the way that, you know, that I saw in one park alone 16 different sports being played. And you're surrounded by Olympic venues as well, where no doubt there were things going on in there. But I do think it is a real shame. On that 2016 bid, they bid with a solar-powered Olympic stadium, which was was proven. It wasn't kind of you know fantasy land. It was a, a genuine kind of saucer around the roof. And then you saw the you know the, the 2020 designs, which were more like a spaceship and so on. It was exciting. But I think when they've gone back, actually for me, you know perhaps a pared-down design was a little bit in the way back to the 6 2016 one. And it had a real strong sustainability message, which I think is still relevant in these these times. Certainly with Agenda 2020, that's what it's all about, sustainability. So I'm surprised nobody has mentioned, going back to this kind of solar power designs that were well advanced at the time, but it's up to the people of Japan also. Agenda 2020 and COP21, maybe they will mm. put something in. They're all about the Japanese. They are world leaders in this area, so I'm surprised. You know? Just to loop this back to what we said originally about kind of the race for 2024... I think particularly in kind of B2B press, Tokyo 2020 may go down well, uh, or it go down in history for its kind of financial strength. I mean, they've already signed up, I don't know, I think it's like eight tier one sponsors. More. Is it, is it more than that? And that's kind of four years out. In terms of its rival bids, I mean, if you look at LA, you know, corporate America, 
Mm. That's probably the bid that you'd think could easily match that. Um, so that's definitely something that LA has over its rivals, I suggest. Well, LA has also got NBC, you know, so in terms of it's so central to the Olympic revenue model that, mm. you know, my, uh, I personally, my heart says Paris, and I've got a horrible, niggly feeling for LA. Mm. That's why I definitely wouldn't rule out LA. I think it would be a, exactly it'd be a commercial one. But I do think as well that m- with many years have passed, yes, America's had the games many times, but there is a whole new generation, probably two generations since they last had the summer games, who are potentially crying out for this. And actually, sedentary lifestyles aren't just you know the, the, America has the same issues as many you know developed countries. And I think it would be a real fillip for them in many many levels. And I think they could make that case beyond the commercial one as well. But with that as the foundation stone of their business. That's if you think <coughs> that the Olympics affects participation, which, which as many like, reasons to say it doesn't. Yeah. Um, that'll do on the Olympic yeah, world. We're gonna we're gonna take a break now, but we'll be back in part two for more stuff about 2015. Listeners, not finding this podcast too boring? Then why not check out the Sports Pro website, where fresh sports industry news, views, features, and interviews are uploaded every single day. Visit sportspromedia.com. Download the Sports Pro app, subscribe to the Sports Pro podcast on iTunes, maybe even treat yourself to a monthly Sports Pro magazine subscription. Delve deeper into the sports industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back to part two. In this part, Richard Gillis is going to talk to everyone about rugby. Over to you, Richard. Right, so, um, I Rugby World Cup, I just thought it was a really, really good event. I'm pleased it was a good event. You know, it was... And I actually, in retrospect, it was terrible at the time where England went out, host nation going out, etc. But actually, them going out showed the strength of the event and it was beyond, you know, it had an existence in the home nation beyond just the sort of uh, tribal thing. So I was really pleased with it and I was really pleased with the way in which smaller countries responded. All the things that um, we often question rugby about, they seem to be sort of, you know, Responding to, I you know, there, there's, the, I liked the story about Japan. I liked the, the the way in which the comparison when Japan beat South Africa. One of the responses was, this wouldn't happen in cricket, and actually that's an interesting, you know, sort of line. So earlier in the year we had a cricket World Cup. Cricket is in a very uh, odd place at the moment, I would suggest, and rugby is showing some leadership in terms of growing its game beyond its core constituency they've both got the same challenges that we've known about forever in terms of the you know the strong nations so called but rugby appear uh, or appears to be engaging with those uh, you know sort of countries in, and and growing the game in a better way and the the question mark and and again if you extend the comparison you've got sevens coming up in the Olympics next year and a lot of people are keen to make the analogy with 2020 cricket now the problem with that is that cricket uh, uh, sorry rugby doesn't have India it doesn't have a sort of economic center and I bang on this uh, bang on about this a lot but I do think that that people may have misread 2020 on the IPL and the success of the IPL it's less to do with the format and it's more to do with India and money. And I don't think, I mean, if you compare, the closest thing that, that Sevens has is the Hong Kong event, and that is a very different event. It was never intended to be an IPL. If someone came into, you know, with a, with a, a lot of money and said, okay, we're going to turn Sevens into a, an IPL, and the same way they've done in tennis, 
they, they might well start in Hong Kong. Um, but it doesn't have that, that energy that the Indian cricket market does. So it's quite tricky. It's, more, it's, it's nuanced. But to end the point, I'd say the Rugby World Cup, I think, was a really big success. Um, other than, obviously, England, which, uh, was a sort of, which was good comedy value anyway along the way. I think um, looking at the comparison between rugby and cricket, um, it'd be interesting to see what happens next year and in the coming years. In term, and I know everybody bangs on about breaking America, whatever the sport, whatever the whatever the uh, the property. But you have uh, cricket this year making a few little moves into uh, the US with Shane Warne and Sachin Tendulkar's All Star Cricket um, ex- series of exhibition games played at baseball stadiums which um, I think we're yet to see whether that will be a long-term, uh, a long-term thing or was something of a one-off. And in terms of rugby, you had a couple of interesting moves this year. Um, obviously, the US uh, competed as they have at the last few Rugby World Cups, um, didn't get beyond the, the pool stages, but there's, there's certainly moves being made uh, in sevens as well. And also, of course, the uh, Aviva Premiership uh, will be staging one of their regular season games, to use an American phrase, uh, there next year. So it will be interesting to chart the progress of both those sports in the States over the next uh, the next two, three years. I think there's a key female dimension to this, actually, that uh, rugby has in spades, and I think particularly in the US, where you're already seeing how far ahead in you know the promotion of women's sports or mixed sports. Touch rugby, for example, we played you know mixed sports. So could contact, but it's obviously less so. Um, but they're much more advanced, whereas in cricket it seems very much to be you know, the traditional form of the game. Uh, and I think we saw with the series that David referred to, a lot of the crowd were you know, second or third generation um, you know, immigrants basically from, from, uh, you know, um, from India or Pakistan, filling the stadiums in some cases, not in others. But I, I, it strikes me that it's almost an ex- at the moment it's an exhibition. Even for the younger kids that haven't seen the Tendulkers of the world, they're going with their dads, uh, you know, in their family, and it's kind of this is what I grew up with, or this is what you should love, as opposed to permeating. And I think rugby is a universal sport at the moment, being seen that way. Um, and you know, just on the Rugby World Cup, I think you've got to, you, you know, I think Richard used the word leadership. I think we should give credit to the leadership of Brett Gosper at the um, at World Rugby. I think you know he's proving that. Great hair. In fact, I was on a. I got stuck um, on the way to sport call with him. I was. Um, we got a, a Russian airline that no one's ever heard of. Despite working on the Russian bid for a few years, it's an airline I had not even heard of. So it was. It was that good. Twenty. Are you, are you Scott, are there are there corporate colours very similar to the corporate colours of Inside the Games? Um, no, it wasn't S7, which was a fantastic <laughs> airline that I greatly enjoyed. Formerly known as Siberian Airlines. Now I know those ones very well. This is this is Cyrillic that unless you can read, um, and it was twenty quid to get from Moscow to Sochi. So Brett and I did wonder if we were going to have to cycle. But um, I did notice what hair product he used because he was very keen to make sure that it got through security because he had a little bit too much of it. Um, and, it and it did get through. It did how, get how through. How much did it have? It was, like a sort of it was a little bit more than you meant to. No, no, no. But it was, it was top, top stuff. A good, uh, I think Matt Cullen has a point on uh, hair product. Please name the hair product. L'Oreal Kerastase. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what after what, that, but it's a silver, it's a, a grey silver little tube. Sponsorship on, watchers, yeah. watch out for L'Oreal coming to World while, Rugby while soon. While we're on Brett Gosper's, <laughs> one, uh, Brett Gosper's hair, while we're on it, have a look at his Twitter. His Twitter page has got a fantastic photo of uh, he, him playing <laughs> in a rugby kit with on a, on front of a car. His hair then, he's in his twenties. Metro, isn't it? Just looking sensational. Yes. I can't, I, I can't talk enough about. 
regrets here. Please, please, please talk a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Right, no, the, the point I was going to make, so David made, you know, made the reference about America. So, so one scenario, if you take Ireland as an example, as a case study of what's gone wrong in cricket, Ireland, okay, and here's a, here's a stat for you, has a bigger diaspora than India. It has the bit, one of the biggest diasporas in the world. Enormous. That's Ireland. with all the Americans pretending they're Irish, isn't yes. it? Yes. Um, well, that is what a diaspora means. Isn't it? <laughs> 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 then, uh, but there was, I was in Ireland, I remember in Ireland in the early, you know, in the sort of uh, early 2000s, working for the Irish Times, they got through the World Cup, blah, blah, blah. And, and the speed at which cricket took hold, it was really interesting. And then the ICC essentially just put a ceiling on their level of ambition. And they're still bashing their heads against that ceiling um, and not being allowed in. Now, if you wanted to break America, if cricket wanted to break America, Ireland would be the perfect vehicle to do it. You know, in 2020, again, would be a great way of doing it. I remember conversations with... Um, around a table with the guys at Guinness in Dublin, head of you know, the sponsorship guys saying, "Okay, we would love to take the Irish cricket team to Boston, and we, you know, you can see you put all the, the component <coughs> parts together." ICC weren't interested. Gillis in Guinness, very interesting prospect. Um, Owen Connolly, you're the very definition of a cricketing man. Can cricket break America? Uh, it's interesting. I was in Dubai last week talking to David Richardson for an interview. David Richardson's the chief executive of the ICC for an interview that will appear in a future edition of Sports Pro magazine. Um, the plan for cricket in the short term in America is to knit together this Indian diaspora and the interest that exists among that. Apparently, the number two country in the world for impressions and use of ESPN Quick Info is the United States, but it is one of the worst run, or is you know held up to be one of the worst run sports administrations mm. in the sport, um, as opposed to Cricket Ireland, which is you know widely held to be an example of something that is doing fantastic work with with mm. the opportunities it has. Warren Jutram, who, who I've also spoken to, yeah, great job. Mm. Um, I think. Yeah, I, I think change is going to have to happen at some point. One of the interesting things is that the. Um, ICC spoke with the IOC uh, in recent weeks and there's certainly a, a groundswell of opinion that cricket needs to be making a move for the Olympics to kind of do some of this globalising work on its behalf um, particularly in the women's game which is you know, going to develop differently and, and another interesting thing that, that was dropped into the conversation last week was that in China the ICC sees women's cricket as its way in um, because they can quickly become a, a kind of global power, I suppose. I'm mm. um, going to move the conversation on from uh, Commonwealth sports uh, looking to crack America to American sports, very much looking to crack the Commonwealth. Uh, David, you are a paid-up fan of the National Football League. We've seen a lot of them over this year, haven't we? <laughs> I love what, a lot of fans or a lot of games? A lot of games. Uh, yes, a lot of games, and you'll be seeing more games in London in the coming years because uh, they did a deal this year to uh, play some games starting next season at Twickenham, and they've also struck a deal with the new... Uh, will it be called White Hart Lane 2? What are we calling it at the moment? The new... The return Stadium. of White Hart Lane. <clears throat> yeah, um, which is currently under construction, um, and once it's ready, it will also be hosting NFL games. Wembley has a long-term deal as well, so the NFL will have three separate venues in London as it continues 
well, depending on your view, either continues uh, playing these uh, increasing number of regular season games involving different teams or makes baby steps towards uh, placing a franchise in London. And you see those, you can see the uh, the baby steps that they're making each season, really. Um, this season, they have played um, <coughs> two games um, in the same stadium, Wembley, in consecutive weeks to uh, test out the operational um, issues that uh, that come with that. We are yet to see, I think, uh, whether there is a real appetite for a franchise in London. There's clearly, every time the NFL plays a game in London, Wembley is a sellout. Every time the NFL plays a game in London, they have... Uh, well-attended fan rallies, fan events. Clearly there are a, a, a large group of, uh, of hardcore NFL fans who are willing to come and, and watch. My question would be whether that translates into switching their allegiance, which has sometimes been developed over decades from their, their particular favourite uh, US NFL team, if you see what I mean, to uh, a potential London franchise. And I think that is the thing that we still don't know, and um, I, I wonder whether the I, I wonder when and whether the NFL will ever make that definitive move to, to placing a franchise here. Because at the moment, it seems to be working quite well for them, staging between what three and I think it will be up to seven or eight games per season here. Um, Matt Cutler, I recall uh, once in your former magazine, Roger Goodell uh, writing some sort of piece at the front. I can't remember what the contents were, but I remember thinking, <laughs> that's Roger Goodell. Um, who, Roger Goodell, of course, the commissioner of the NFL. Who's better at internationalising their game, their brand, Roger Goodell or his counterpart, Adam Silver, at the NBA? That's a very good question. You've really put me on the spot there, which I don't appreciate. But, um, <laughs> don't worry, there's editing. But I'm just going to ignore the question and go back to what David said. Um, and I think it, I actually think the NFL will have a London franchise probably by the end of this decade, perhaps, you know, after this next set of kind of, uh, kind of short term deals run out. Um, and when it becomes, I mean, I know it's not a one off because there's more than one game, but when it goes from a one off to being a regular thing, I'll be interested to see whether there's a kind of a switch then because you know even now in and around London around the UK people say oh the NFL's in town let's go you know let's go and try it I myself have done that gone to see it once and then I have no I mean this is a personal interest but I have no real personal interest in after that the NFL hasn't resonated with me at all I mean I've been to a couple of the games I thought they were you know the atmosphere was was pretty good because they were obviously packed the, the whole jamboree around them I thought was very well executed spent a lot of money Regent Street stuff is you know award winning awareness building stuff but that, I think that's where it stops for me I think its impact is we're here the circus is in town and I think if it was ours I think it would quickly dilute the proposition for me though I do think the NBA who I think hasn't done as good a job actually as the NFL at cutting through in that way but I do think it's probably a longer term more likely play because I think in the end it comes down to you know sports that inner city kids can play and pick up and play right now if you want to bouncing the ball around and playing basketball it's quite a universal accessible sport NFL you know and, and it's, I don't think it's relevant the whole concussions thing but they're suffering reputationally right now basketball seems in reasonable shape certainly in terms of being able to pick up a ball and play around as I say so I think long term it's probably going to be easier for the NBA whether they'll achieve it or not is a different matter uh, yeah, I wonder if, if for the NBA, you know, 
devolving a franchise to London is, is the way forward or whether it's some kind of tie up with Euro League or some kind of you know something more substantial than that I mean the difference between basketball and, and American football is that basketball is played in, in scores of countries around the world American football is only seriously played in the US really and, and a version of it in Canada uh, where they have anything kind of leading up to a, a professional system um, so I think for the NFL it makes sense to kind of go down this route of being uh, very much event based and even in the US they are an event based organisation every team plays fewer than 20 games a year um, as opposed to the kind of 100 and something in, in basketball and baseball um, I think there's definitely whether there's a fan appetite and you know don't underestimate the the scale and the cosmopolitanism of, of London as somewhere that can attract fans to pretty much anything um, there's certainly a, a, a state appetite George Osborne has been in meetings this year with the NFL and there's a precedent for that and the kind of the bolt exemption for for world class athletes in terms of taxes um, but you know it's a, it's something that they will they'll flirt with and, and is a possibility right I'm uh, this is the last word on the NFL before we move on black hat um, <laughs> so I've got a feeling so I remember uh, you know I'm the generation of the Channel 4 generation 80, 82 84 86 of the first time around NFL came in you know, and it was an exotic product Okay, so it was something that, that actually became less interesting and le- I became less engaged with it the closer they, they came. When they started, towards the late 80s, um, when The Fridge and John Riggins and Dan Marino started coming over and doing personal appearances and you know, they started playing crappy games at Wembley, it was, I just, it, everyone just turned off and the whole appeal of it, it went into a ditch. Because actually, the appeal of it was that it was not of this place; it was it was somewhere else. And and the one of the issues around globalization of sport, and we you know we see this around lots of different sports, is actually that we assume that sport that we can just engender global appeal, and you know we can follow conjure teams. I mean, one of the most cynical things I've heard was um, it was Roger Goodell who said, you know, it was whatever we call it, so it's the London whatevers, you know, and, and if anything could be just more dismissive, it, well, you know, just call them anything, those Londoners all follow it, you know, and I've got a feeling he thinks that we're a bit like sort of Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, you know, and there's a sort of, it's like the, when, when Friends came to London, you know, it was like sort of this caricature cartoon version of London, I've got a feeling that the NFL think that that's what London's like, and... I've got a horrible feeling that the logo of one of the London whatevers will involve Big Ben, a red, you know, a red bus, and uh, the head of Winston Churchill. I'd like to point out, Richard, uh, before we finish this part, that you live in Brighton, um, and that is actually what we're like here in London. <laughs> uh, that's the end of part two. Uh, in part three, soccer. Oh my gosh, it's back again. Sports Pro Live, Sports Pro's flagship industry conference, returns with a bang in 2016. Over two days at Wembley Stadium in London, we'll showcase the brand new models, concepts and technologies that are reshaping the sports and media landscapes. We're expecting hundreds of international delegates to join us on the 22nd and 23rd of March, and we'd love you to be there. Join us! 
Welcome back to part three, the pleasant murmur of pub chit-chat <coughs> in the background, and coughing. Um, Scott Bowers, uh, the race, the British racing industry currently embroiled in its own, uh, not embroiled, currently going through uh, TV rights negotiation process now. Your head is in a TV rights space. Soccer, British soccer, the Premier League, has had a bum- another bumper year of uh, TV rights sales this year. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's, it's, it's um, a huge deal, um, over £5 billion, um, into the Premier League, um, and that's a combination of, of Sky um, with the majority of games, but also a, a large investment of almost a billion from BT Sport. I think BT Sport have shown themselves, um, you know, a few years ago we weren't really sure what they were going to do in the sports market. I think they've been a really strong entrant, um, very good, you know, they've done very well with the, the content and the properties that they have. Um, I think it's an interesting times for Sky. I mean, this is great news for the for the Premier League at this stage. But the fact that you know Sky's subscription model right now is so heavily based on retaining those Premier League rights, the guys sitting pretty are the Premier League, and underneath that, you know, BT are are, are seeming to kind of ride along quite nicely from it. So. You know, you see various PR and, and, and messaging around who's done well from all the process, but I would say the guys that have definitely done well are the Premier League, and then it's down to, you know, even the bottom club getting so much money. And you look across at La Liga, where they've sold the rights independently and individually in the past, and they've now moved to this inclusive model, probably having seen the success for the last few years of not just the Premier League, Bundesliga as well, and so on. It definitely seems to be the way forward. David, um, before you rudely left Sports Pro magazine in the lurch in May, uh, you attended the uh, press conference at which these new rights deals with BT and Sky were announced, and I believe you personally were shocked. Well, <laughs> I think everybody was shocked when the number was read out, and it was it was uh, Richard Scudamore deadpanning um, as he announced uh, A, the uh, different packages and the way that they've been sold and then pausing for dramatic effect uh, announced the uh, the number 5.136 billion I think it was um, with that deal kicking in next season and uh, you know there were audible gasps from a fairly sort of cynical sports news uh, lobby um, an extraordinary amount of money <laughs> all, all of them Richard all of them um, you know an, an extraordinary deal and, and as uh, Scott said you know it, it, the repercussions are I think already being felt in the transfer market in the way that uh, Premier League clubs are able to go in and, and spend huge amounts of money. Stoke City, for example, uh, in the summer were a club who, uh, who invested heavily in, uh, in uh, well, mainly Barcelona players, as it turned out. Um, and you know, that is... Uh, proving, I think, more than a little frustrating for uh, some of the other major European leagues, the Bundesliga, Syria, um, La Liga, as Scott said, have moved to this collective selling model. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is how this will impact English teams' performances in Europe, which have uh, dipped over the past, uh, what, two, three seasons? Owen, um, La Liga was mentioned earlier. They've gone to collective rights selling. They've also seen a significant uplift um, in the fees that they've been receiving from broadcasters, uh, both in Spain and around the world. Uh, what's your take on that? Will, will they be able to catch up with the Premier League? Uh, you never know. They've, they've conceded a huge advantage to start with, and they made the the kind of historical error that I think Syria did, which was 
switching to this individualized model or, or you know persisting with an individualized model and it means that they've had ground to catch up in terms of the strength and depth of the competition um, the kind of some of the branding elements and that kind of thing that Premier League has been doing together for the last 10-15 years um, and also uh, you know just the idea that when you when you're watching television if, if it's in the United States now on NBC or you know for many years in, in Asia or Africa the Premier League has always been something that people know what they're getting and La Liga has increasingly become about these two teams right up the top of the league with these fantastic players and it's become about the imports of, of players rather than the brand of Spanish football which ought to have been unassailable in the last five or six years given the, the success the national team's had. Well, it also comes back to what Scott was saying in an earlier part of this podcast um, about an appointment to view of which live sport is. There's only a certain amount of times that live football can be scheduled and in M- taking NBC and Premier League on, on that in the United States as, as a case study, you know, um, it's gone from kids watching cartoons in the morning on a Saturday to watching Premier League coverage and the Premier League has built its product for so long it's going to be very difficult for, a, for someone else to come in and challenge them for that for that space um, and yeah and, and as Owen was saying you know, it's, everyone will still perhaps watch the Real Madrid Barcelona game but if it's going to be Real Madrid against I don't know Mallorca is that is that a, is that a yep. La Liga team yeah. Yeah. on a kind of on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock in the United States is anyone really going to watch that even if it's versus Aston Villa against Stoke if Aston Villa are of course in the Premier League in ne- next year which they won't be mm. um, talk about appointment to view here's an appointment in my diary February the twenty something it's the uh, <laughs> it's the uh, it's the FIFA presidential elections. Is that not right, or, am I, or, am I, or is my appointment actually in it January? Is, it is the twenty something. It's yeah, February the twenty something. Mark it in your diaries. Uh, happy birthday, Richard. February the twenty something, and what twenty something again for you? Anyway, um, Seth Blatter has or has not finally fallen from grace. There's been all sorts of shenanigans going on at FIFA this year. Probably too much for us to explain exactly what's gone on. But let's just get some reactionary words from around the table um, as one, to one word each yeah, well, okay, well uh, maybe have to be reactionary words. Uh, David maybe go, go to you first sum up what the hell's gone on at FIFA or maybe just give your opinion on what should happen at FIFA next I think it's all a bit of a mess and I think what actually should happen um, with FIFA is to uh, and I know the issues that we've seen exposed in great detail this year go way beyond a PR job or a rebrand, but I think what FIFA needs to do is go down the route that World Rugby has gone down and uh, more more recently uh, the International Sailing Federation has gone down um, and uh, rebrand themselves and call themselves something like, I don't know, World Football, for example, and, and Scott Bowers has a thought on this as well. Well, Scott, well actually, I'm gonna, I am going to go to I'm going to go to Scott now because Scott. It, well, actually, I'm going to go to Matt because he's frantically gesturing at me. Who? I think that's also a good idea. But who needs who? The impetus is on whom to do that. Absolutely. Good question, Scott. I just think um, fundamentally, you know, uh, PR communications. Um, there's an absolutely no way. It's not a sticking plaster. You can't put your finger in a dam and everything stops. FIFA is clearly, you know, needs completely re- restructure. 
the issue at the moment is, even with the presidential candidates currently, is that you know the governance structure is wrong that has brought those guys to the table. Um, I think it taints um, sports organisations and federations around the world. Um, so it's not a PR job that needs doing. However, I think if FIFA put itself in a position to, um, you know, can it right the ship? You know, we've heard that kind of the rocking boat and ships and all sorts of things from FIFA and IWFs and so on recently. I think the answer is absolutely, if it sorts its governance, of course FIFA can regain trust. World football, if you like, without it being an official brand name, is in reasonable shape. It's still the world's biggest sport. There's still lots of good things going on. Um, And the World Cup brand is fantastic. The FIFA World Cup brand. Absolutely, and it's the FIFA part of it that's polluting this. So, but however... So do I believe with good, that's when communications comes in, when you have something to actually work with and you say what you're going to do, except you have an issue, you talk about what you're going to do to tackle it, you talk about how you're tackling it, and then you demonstrate that it's succeeded and then you move into a more positive phase and go on. That journey can happen, but it would be quicker, frankly, to completely start again with a an organisation with the right governance structure from scratch and have a world football brand and move on quickly from there. Richard Gillis, you're a stickler for good governance. <laughs> I am. It's not often said that, but that's very true, and I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, the What I'd say is that we have, over the last sort of 15 years or so, we've seen the insertion of the, of the word FIFA in front of the events, and actually... And that's a sponsorship marketing conceit, which is, you know, essentially it's to build a portfolio of sponsors that sits above the individual events. And it's a greedy move and it's a, it's a move that no one really bought into. Um, but now they have to take that away. And, and actually the events, as David said there, are, you know, we've had the Women's World Cup this year, brilliant event. Mm. Um, great audiences, big spikes in, in interest. You know, get the FIFA name out of the way. It's just corporate arrogance. And we've seen this in every major sport because, you know, they are they assume or they, there is in this bubble that they are the interesting ones or, you know, this, this, this word is of interest to, to sponsors and broadcasters. It isn't, and it has to then sort of just move into the background. And whether or not they'll be able to do that... Who knows? And, and, you know, to Matt's point, the fundamental thing, and as Scott said, the, the, the thing is wrong, um, the way in which the organisation is, is set up, and it has to fundamentally change. And none of the, you know, as we've said many, for, many times in this podcast before, none of those people that are, are lining up to become the next step latter inspire hope. There's no one there with a sort of, you know, hope poster um, with why, their face on it. Which is why they should hire Barack Obama. Mm. Well, he's out of a job soon. Yeah. Mm. Um, as, as, in had, fact, um, as um, sorry, I heard Gordon podcast. Brown's name used as uh, potential FIFA president. Yeah, <laughs> well, that would be a turn up for the books. Um, I heard the other day that the only thing uh, salvaging the FIFA brand was the EA football game. Yeah, FIFA, yeah. whatever. And even that's got Pro Evo back on its heels again this year. So. Mm. There still isn't a better idea, though, in terms of uh, promoting uh, women's football and youth football, James, than your sensational idea, which I think you should probably just give a, a little overview of again, because the more, the more publicity this gets, the closer it is to reality. 
for regular listeners, uh, you'll know that I put forward this idea on the last podcast, but what the hell? I'll do it again. Uh, I think that European football should, uh, European football specifically, should adopt uh, the Davis Cup model rather than finding a way to inject jeopardy into friendly games um, by creating a very convoluted league system um, that no one really understands, which is going to come into force, I believe, in 2018 or maybe earlier. Um, they should instead promote women's and youth football by playing a series of rubbers, three games for example, against nations from around the world, like the Davis Cup, in that... Uh, you, you said this is a good idea? I say this is a good idea, and I've made overtures you, you, to Gianni you, you, you Infantino. I haven't even, haven't even finished you, you it yet. You it as though it it's like it's anyway, first, first game, it is an inarguably good idea. idea. First game, you have uh, the under-21s, for example, taking on you know, England versus Switzerland. <coughs> Friday night. Friday night game, very, very good get, mm. night for a game. Uh, Saturday, daytime, 5.15, kick-off perhaps. You have uh, England women against Switzerland women. And then Sunday, in the afternoon slot on Sunday, you have the... The, the, the men's national teams playing against each other Can in the decider ask, potentially is that not a tiny bit patronising to women's football and potentially stunting its growth as a, a sport in its own right I don't think so and I think it gives it a platform to flourish <laughs> if it's patronising to anything it's patronising to the youth team having to play first <laughs> they already do well, there we go. Anyway, you know, as, a, as, as the great idea of the future of sports marketing, I think, well, you know, let's, let's park that and come and back. There's a reason I'm a journalist and not an executive, Richard. Yeah. I mean, in all seriousness, there is one idea that is, um, that is off limits to, to FIFA or to whoever might come in and, and run world football, and that would be to scrap the results of the 2010 FIFA World Cup votes and run it again, because that would smack of the kind of parochialism and uh, you know kind of Western European Anglospheric self-interest that has led to somebody like Blatter being able to, to capitalise for so many years. Mm. There is a thing that I wanted to raise on um, bid processes and obviously um, that, that FIFA World Cup bidding process uh, is under all sorts of scrutiny now and for good reason Olympic bidding processes have come under scrutiny in the past and will continue to come under scrutiny. Um, the Ryder Cup recently awarded to Rome. Obviously, IMG acted as consultants for the Rome bid, and IMG have super strong links to European golf across all manner of areas. Uh, Seb Coe came under fire for his links with Nike. Eugene, obviously the home of Nike, awarded the 2019 World Athletics Championships. He's come under fire for that. Is there not something to be said for... These organisations, these sports governing bodies, it's their ball, they can play with it how they want. Yes. I think there is. I think what you have, um, what you have at the moment is a conflation of um, huge money, lots of it poured in by broadcasters and sponsors. You have uh, government involvement in that many, many governments around the world want to host events and therefore will invest public money in facilities and bidding and all sorts of other things. And you have generally, as we've just been speaking about, um, under-regulation of um, international sports federations, which are under more scrutiny than ever because there is government interest and therefore more media interest in how money is spent. And so, But I do think there is, there is a point where we have to be careful in what we describe as corruption and what we describe as... Um, and how would we describe it? We describe it as... We describe it... We, uh, 
yeah, well, uh, uh, so, you know, canny um, strategic thinking, and I think that I think there is a genuine grey area there. there. Scott, um, if the Jockey Club, which of course owns Aintree, the home of the Grand National, um, were to go with a completely new model and had uh, the Grand National floating around racecourses from year to year, uh, and those racecourses had to bid for the right to host the Grand National, obviously the most um, important televised uh, racing event in the country, starting from scratch, therefore, in a bidding process, how would you go about doing that? I mean, it's, it's very interesting. You've picked on a good example because the Grand National is the people's race. So actually, we just moved the uh, the time back for the National from 4.15 to 5.15 um, from, from 2016 onwards. Um, that's simply because it's already 9 million TV audience, but it's because there are a few million more sat at home who potentially could watch it and getting back from football and various other things. So we factored in a lot of... The reason I mentioned that is we factored in a lot of public feedback into that and, and thinking of the fan and how they could watch it. I'm not sure how... You know, I haven't got a lot of time or perhaps even experience in how to build a bidding process however I would say having worked on various bids I think transparency is critical I think that a public component of some some point some part the ISC goes a lot further than FIFA Okay, the public don't vote, and I agree with David, actually. At the end of the day, uh, if you're a well-structured governing body in charge of a global sport or a local local thing, like you're saying about the Grand National in the UK, you know you should be set up that you have the sport's best interest, which includes its fans. So you should have a structure that makes sure you understand what your customer, what your fan actually wants in that process. But uh, the ISC, ask, you know, part of the, um, the criteria process is what's the national support level for a, for a bid. So that is factored in. How much of an impact that actually then has on the end result is questionable, but what it does do is it often stops bidding their tracks, as we've just seen recently, for example, you know, in around this process and the last process. Domestic support wasn't enough for certain bids and they fell away instantly. Um, so I, I think for me it's it's definitely got to you know come down to factoring it in, but I, I don't think that, um, you know, whether it's the Grand National or whether it's the FIFA World Cup, it should be a global democratic vote because it's, it's impossible to do that, but it's got to be delivered in a complete transparent way involve the public in some and, and all stakeholders the participants as well in racing you know the horses the, you know the owners of the horses the, you've got to put them first the welfare of the horse has got to come first Scott's right transparency is key but I, I may be slightly unpopular saying this but if you look at regardless of everything that's gone on obviously it hasn't been above board within FIFA across the last how many decades but if you look at it kind of take a step back and think oh Sepp Blatter took the World Cup to Africa, Eastern Europe in Russia. I don't think the World Cup's ever been held over. The Olympics obviously has. And then the Middle East. On kind of paper, that seems quite you know, reasonable, I'd suggest. You know, the, the football going to new territories. I mean, there's always the argument that, you know, football should be held in its heartlands because that's where its fans are, blah, blah, and all, and all that. But um, I think it's important that um, you have leadership in sports organisations that can make big decisions because they recognise for the right the best interest of the sport it may be that you know as, as just as Matt said it may be that um, certain games certain World Cups certain sports events wouldn't have gone to certain territories if it hadn't have been for leadership being shown um, and how else would you make that process it's very, you can't have a global vote on things it would have resulted in some of those results which approved you know, for example the next Rugby World Cup is going to Japan 
would that have happened yeah. under a different system? I think the fact that Japan have just done so well in this World Cup gone in England, it bodes very well for that. And there's an emerging, you know, uh, territory in, in the rugby in the rugby game, for example. That's the end of part three. Uh, in part four, we'll decide whether there is a part four um, because of the background noise. <laughs> Sports Pro, the sports industry leader in print, digital, events. And, and podcasts. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Christmas Party podcast here in the middle of the Sports Pro Christmas Party. Uh, I'm here with uh, the same guests that I, as I was here with uh, in the last part. Um, and we're going to wrap things up with our predictions for 2016 and also a little mention, first of all, of uh, the best list there has ever been in the sports industry in 2015. Richard, this was your list, the hashtag unofficial 50. Please explain just what the hell it was all about. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's it's not so much a list. It's it's a sort of grassroots movement, and it's 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 not an exaggeration to say this is the sort of thing that Martin Luther King would have been doing had he still been alive. Um, it is just you know the word viral does not do it justice. The, the the awkward bit about this podcast is that Scott Bowers made it in and and made it in quite easily into the uh, into the thirties. Um, whereas Matt Cutler and Owen Connolly didn't make it in, and, and James, you made it in. Some would say higher than your uh, you, you were due. And Dave, David, despite his his, his corporate sort of um, you know shilling, um, is, uh, is is also on the list. So I I found it both you know and and r- listeners to this podcast will will also find it as fascinating as I did to uh, to do it. No, basically it started from uh, I I the sports. Forbes did this thing, sports, you know, 50 tweeters or whatever, and I had a suspicion that I wasn't going to be on it. And, uh, and I also drank a bottle of red wine, and those two things, those two factors, um, came together in the, uh, in the creation of the hashtag unofficial50. But it's been extraordinary. I got a, I got a, I got a sort of mention. Someone from America keeps, keeps asking why he's not on it, and I've never ever heard of him, and uh, he, he can get in touch privately. But, uh, yeah, so essentially, have a look at Unofficial Partner. Um, it's, well, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. Um, not, you know, and, and it's probably the most emotional moment, I think, of my life, you know. Well, it is a marvellous list, and uh, I enjoyed I can't, it. I can't emphasise enough quite quite what a good list it is. No, no, it is very good, and uh, do have a look at unofficialpartner.co.uk. Yeah, uh, check out the full list and it's entirely the top 50 made up of 51 people. I did have I did have unofficialpartner.com uh, for the first two years, but I then let that drift, and I think it's important that the listeners uh, understand that. Well, I mean, uh, two fingers up to convention, uh, and that was a great anecdote about the dot com. Um, but I'm just uh, slightly awkward for me, obviously. And, obviously, and, obviously dot, no- and dot eu. <laughs> <laughs> you know, slightly awkward, obviously, me not being on this list, but I'd, I'd, I'd really like to know what my three and a half thousand followers would think of that. Who do include, obviously, Dick well, Fosbury think, yeah, and one, one uh, the, uh... Aston Villa legend Sean Teal? <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps something, something for you to uh, put your mind to in 2016, Matt. Matt, Matt. Now Matt's out of a job. He uh, he can put his put a great deal of effort into getting on the list. I think you know it's there. It's 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 you know it's very much an ambition for people wannabes like Matt, who uh, who might then you know get 
get get themselves onto the list. A, a few tweets that got retweeted. You know, you can imagine him in the middle of the night tweeting you, away. Does that mean you're really going to do another one? It it feels as I as I um. Uh, said the other day to someone it feels like a Christmas thing uh, Volavant's eggnog and the unofficial 50 mm. I'm listening to all of this and I'm laughing inside if not outwardly uh, but I'm also thinking I'm going to have to edit all of this so uh, we need to move on Matt 2016 obviously a big year for you as you um, find a job and uh, create your own list to rival Richard Gillis's um, but can you point to something in the sports industry that we should be looking out for that you've got your uh, your eye on something we should watch for good question um i i mean i hate to go over ground we've covered already but i mean hopefully there'll be some kind of fifa or whatever the organization will be called at that point that is any way different to the one that stands currently will it be if the new president is elected within the current guidelines who, who really knows um, again sorry to cover over uh, cover old ground but Discovery in Eurosport. I mean, Eurosport seems to have gone... It does seem to have changed a lot in the past six months or so, so who knows what could happen in the future. Scott Bowers, do you have something that you're on the lookout for in 2016? I think it has to be a big picture one. I think there's just going to be a lot of changes at the very top of sport and some of the organisations we've talked about today. I think hopefully that will lead to greater transparency and integrity in those sports, but also trust from, from the fans, because at the end of the day, everything we work in, all the sports, and nothing without people enjoying them, whether that's through TV, whether that's online, whether that's buying shirts, whatever it is. I think also within that, uh, and so hopefully there will be positive changes, I think we will see, see some more scandals in the next 12 months, because inevitably, if we've seen a couple of very big ones this year there's going to be a few more along the way let's be honest um, but I do think as well a, slot, you know, a level below that I think we probably will see more consolidation in some cases um, around age, in the agency world and slightly in the media world but I think there's a, a factor I'm looking at is just the shift towards increasing them as organisations and there's no one that isn't already in this camp but it's, I think it's going to continue they're becoming publishers you know, rights holders of our own content You've, we, we make a lot of money and that gets back generally goes back into our sports from media organisations. How does that balance with the fact we've also got our own content and we can go direct to our own customers? And I think that's a balance that, you know, whether it's the Olympic Channel, whether it's horse racing, whether it's Formula One, we can all work on some amazing content. You know, where is the value in that between owned media, earned media, bought media, all of this? I think it's an interesting dynamic for sports organisations, not just in the next 12 months, but I think it's a particular one now as the plates feel to me like they're slightly shifting and we're seeing traditional media continually shrink and dilute. Oh, just, to, just to add on to don't don't you know I'm we're here to talk don't don't pull a face when I uh, grab the microphone. The other thing to say, 2016, to add on to Scott's thing, is that uh, one of the the Spotify for sport type movements will happen. So Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, one of the YouTube Red, etc., etc., will come into the sports market. That's my one prediction. And that, I think that's, that feels like the headline to the podcast. Well, you got the headline last time you were on, and we'll, we'll wait and see whether you get the headline this time. Owen, um, no doubt your main thing that you'll be watching next year is uh, Sports Pro Live on the 22nd and 23rd of March, uh, obviously our flagship uh, sports industry event. What else will you be looking at come 2016? I mean, I'll be watching some of that. I'll be presenting some of it and reporting on some of it as well. Um, the, uh, there's going to be some fun and games at the headquarters of the world's allegedly second most popular sport, uh, the ICC, 
the ECB here in England are going to put forward a candidate to lead world cricket from June or July. At the moment, the likeliest candidate for that is Giles Clark, but he is a man who has a diametrically opposed worldview on just about everything from everyone who has come in to replace him and his regime there. So that could be quite fun in the same way as Srinivasan in the BCCI has been this year. Um, I think, picking up almost on a point that um, Scott and Richard were talking about, it will be interesting to see if the opportunities at the, the really, really lower end of the sport of the sports industry, sorry, um, things we've seen like in this country, like Salford City, Dulwich Hamlet, uh, in other countries, you know, um, with with these uh, these teams and, and organisations right at the bottom that are community led, whether there are people in the sponsorship industry or people in the kind of media distribution industry who get into that, who twig that there's something that they can do to to kind of bring more people into that movement, will be uh, will be something to watch. Owen's got his eye on the grassroots. David Kushnan, fallow year for you in 2016. Sure. Four predictions from me, though. Um, short and sweet. Los Angeles will get, finally, uh, an NFL team. Uh, Major League Baseball will announce plans to stage a game in London. Rio 2016 will be brilliant for anybody watching on TV. Possibly not for those on the ground. And uh, Gianni Infantino will uh, lead football into a, a brave new dawn. He does a good draw. Here's one for me. Wonder Sports uh, will become the most important agency in the sports industry. Um, I think Wonder Sports, formerly. You're steaming up, Richard. Your glasses are steaming up. Um, that's all for this uh, festive podcast. Um, thank you very much, and Merry Christmas to all of my many guests here. Thank you very much, David Cushman. Thank you, and Merry Christmas. Thank you very much, and Merry Christmas, Scott Bowers. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you very much, Matt Cutler. Thank you, and festive greetings, I think is the PC way of saying it. Thank you, Richard Gillis. Thank you, Merry Christmas, hashtag unofficial50. And thank you, Owen Connolly. Thanks, James. Merry Christmas.